Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Question, who is Tracy Droz Tragos? Answer, an award-winning documentary filmmaker, writer, producer, with quite an impressive list of credits to her name. She's a 2021 Sundance Screenwriting and Directing Fellow and a Susan Nimoy Fellow and Lynn Auerbach Fellow for her narrative feature, Macrobiotic Toker. Her documentary, Rich Hill, has received several honors, including the Sundance Film Festival's Grand Jury Prize in 2014, Best Director Award at the Sarasota Film Festival, Best Film at Michael Moore's Traverse City Film Festival. Rich Hill, which chronicles the coming of age of three adolescent boys in a small Missouri town, aired on the PBS Independent Lens series. In 2020, Tracy was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship, honoring her work on the long-form feature Sarah, which follows a girl's transition from childhood to adulthood in the rural Midwest. Tracy's 2016 doc, Abortion, Stories Women Tell, premiered at the 2016 Tribeca Film Festival and a year later was shown on HBO. Her first documentary, Be Good, Smile, Pretty, details the profound and complicated feelings of loss caused by the deaths of U.S. servicemen during the Vietnam War, including that of her father. Last but so not least is her current project, The Smartest Kids in the World. Based on the New York Times bestseller of the same name, it chronicles a year abroad for four American teens who study in countries that leave U.S. education in the dust. Lots to talk about. So let's meet and get to know Tracy Droz Tragos. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Thank you for having me. Tracy, I ask this often of my filmmaker guests. Is that what you wanted to do when you grew up? You wanted to make movies? Well, early, early, early on, I think I, I wanted to be um, in movies. <laughs> So, so you were putting I, I, on plays in the in the barn in the backyard. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I was a theater kid. One of those, um, yeah, you know, at putting on plays at school, putting on plays in the backyard, and it was um, the movies of the seventies, the Vietnam movies that really, really turned me on to filmmaking. Um, my father was killed in Vietnam when I was a baby, when I was just three months old. Wow. And I, you know, I longed to know him. I longed to know what his experience was. And these movies that started to come out when I was pretty young, and I probably saw them earlier than I should have. It was not necessarily age appropriate, but I longed to know what the experience of war was like and perhaps, you know, just through that could get closer to him. And I found the experience transformative. And in some ways, I felt like I, I did get closer to him. Um, and, and that really turned me on to the power of what films can do. So when you were watching movies about Vietnam, were they both docs as well as features? I... I Primarily saw features, but there was one uh, documentary I saw later on um, that particularly moved me. It was called Regret to Inform. Um, and of course, that's what Receiving my the heard. bad news, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, that was about widows, yeah. widows of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, my mother was a widow, and that's what she heard when the man came to the door, wow. um, was, you know, we regret to inform you. And 
So anyway, that was the inspiration in part, you know, all of for the first documentary that I made, which was about my father and my journey to know him. Well, it's interesting that you kind of had this sense at a very young age, and then you were actually able to, in a sense, and I use the term in quotes, follow through. But but how did that happen? You decided as you got older that you were going to major in film when you got to college? Well, I, I started Northwestern as a as a theater major, because I was still involved in theater. Um, but I knew I didn't want to be a singer or a dancer. That was not my thing. And at Northwestern University, there was a big focus on singing and dancing. Really? So, yeah, yeah. Oh, um, who would have thunk? Okay. <laughs> you know, the WAMU show, and it was very... I, I, so I transferred into uh, a, a smaller, this was in my junior year, writing program, it was kind of modeled after the um, Iowa Writers Workshop. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I got into writing. And then the writing led me to go to film school for screenwriting. So I went Where did to you US- do that? I did that at USC okay. right after um, I graduated from Northwestern. But, you know, it was still a time for me when I was... I, I didn't know how to break in. I mean, my, my mother had been an English teacher... And then after my father died, was a, went to law school and was in Northern California. I, most of my family was in Missouri. Like I had no Hollywood connections. So I, I really didn't know how to begin. And the studio system seemed very far off and, and not accessible, even with an MFA from USC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, you know, I had I had my thesis script and I sent it around and I, it was even optioned, but it was, I didn't feel like I had permission to make films. I didn't really know about making independent films at that time. What time? What year was that to give us context? This was like 1994. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so I ended up in the assistant ranks for several years. <laughs> I was an assistant at an agency. Um, I was an assistant at DreamWorks. And I remember mm-hmm. s- sitting at these desks, answering these phones and feeling like, I want to be, you know, I want to be the creative person. Sure. I want to be the client. I want to, you know, and it took a while for me to put it together that I could green light myself that I didn't need to wait for permission from some studio person, some creative executive, you know, somebody else. Well, I've interviewed a lot of female filmmakers and the road to hoe has been really very tough because there was not a lot of mentoring, as you are pointing out, and that you had to kind of, you know, chart your own course. And yes, maybe, well, listen, DreamWorks and some of these other companies where you were hired, the ability to absorb what's going on there and then taking that knowledge plus your own talent and your own drive and going for it. Well, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, and frankly, I I don't think it was at that time and probably still an equal playing field. That that doesn't mean that I... (laughs) shouldn't have made different choices, but I do. It was interesting for me. I, I spoke with um, one of my advisors in the Sundance Lab recently, and he was meeting with Steven Spielberg 
at DreamWorks around the same time, because he's, we are about the same age when I was answering phones, you know, outside in the reception area. And I just think that, you know, (laughs) we, it would have been virtually impossible at that time for me to have been taken seriously, no matter what my talents were. So take us on that, on that journey. When you left there, and, and you still had in your heart and in your soul that you were going to make a movie about what you went through in terms of this traumatic experience of losing your dad. Well, I knew that it was the thing in me that I needed to explore. You mm-hmm. know, we sort of all have these things that we need to explore, you know, these, these things that we turn over, um, you know, these things that keep us up at night, these things that, um, are unresolved or, and and for me, yes, this was a big, big thing. And it was also tied up to my, with my relationship with my own mother who couldn't talk about my father very much, Uh, who, mm -hmm, I mean, he was the, mm -hmm. he was the love of her life. And, you know, and, 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 and she was pretty walled off emotionally. So, um, yeah, so this was like the thing that I needed to deal with. And so, you know, what happened was one night I was writing and working in this as an assistant during the day, writing at night. I took a break one night in the middle of the night and, um, just started entering my father's name into a search engine, you know, Mm -hmm. just, and I didn't enter the full name that Donald Glendrose. I just entered Don Drose and up came an account of how he was killed, written by a man who was with him on his boat and had witnessed him die. And that, um, kind of, that was the thing that, that was the moment that everything changed. <laughs> oh, I bet. Oh, I bet. I mean, did your body just freeze? I mean, it just, you know, time stopped. Yeah. Time stopped. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. just the moment when, oh my God, this is, and there was a picture. There was also a picture of the wreckage of his boat. He was a swift boat skipper. And I stared at that picture and I stared at this article. And then, you know, I, I reached out and was able to find the man that wrote the article and was able to find more people who served with my father and and really then was emboldened to kind of talk to my mother and say, we, you know, look at this. Mm. So that was a major turning point in, in my life and in my filmmaking. So Be Good, Smile, Pretty was made in what year? That was released in uh, 2003, 2004. And was it a slog to get funding and to have people, and I use this term in quotes again, take you seriously? Yes, but I didn't care. I did everything I could. I had garage sales. I, uh, you know, I had, you know, fiscal sponsorships so I could, I could rattle the cup and people could make donations. And I mean, I did everything. I maxed my credit cards. I turned a, you know, my, (laughs) my house was my editing room and my everything. And I, 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 I did it, you know, I, I did it with, any means necessary. And I think sometimes once you have that attitude, I did discover that people will 
<laughs> you know, the support will come. It's like, you know, I, it's sort of a silly expression, but that, you know, Costner movie, um, you know, if you build it, they will come. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there is a certain truth to that. And I, I got a partnership with the Missouri, um, Kansas City public television station. Uh, they came on board and gave me in-kind support. And then I got ITBS on board and, and they were a, they gave a, a grant or licensing fee for the film. We ended up uh, premiering at the LA Film Festival and we won the LA Film Festival. Oh man, uh-huh. And then we premiered on Independent Lens and um, and it won the Emmy. And it was just like, it was a lot of stuff went on and on and on with that film um, that I never would have imagined. That almost yeah. sounds Cinderella-ish. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, and not for a moment debasing, you know, the slog that I'm sure you had to endure, but what a wonderful reward. Yes, yes. It was a wonderful reward. And I will also say it was a very, very good experience for me, for my documentary work, because I put myself in the film, I put my family in the film, and I, I understand now when I'm turning the camera on other people, what I'm asking them to do. Sure, sure. And and how that's not always easy. I mean, and there's a long tail to it because there's not just the the filming itself, but also the life after the film. And, and that, you know, it's, it's, we're asking a lot as documentary filmmakers of the people we collaborate with. And I, I, now know that in such a deep in my body way sure that I hope makes me a better filmmaker so with that film with that doc under your belt you were off and running and then what was it you would just quote stumble on ideas or you had a certain mindset of what it was you wanted to chronicle uh well honestly it wasn't it it wasn't like oh now i'm a documentary filmmaker it <laughs> it took more work i i got um i went in house um at a production company and and did a pilot documentary television series that only aired once and that didn't get picked up but i felt like i needed a day job i mean i still needed to make money it wasn't sure. like I was so, uh, I think, you know, that was a point. I was also a little burnt out because I I had been in a way, and this will sound, I, I don't know, I, I had been a poster child for what it was like to lose a father in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of work with the impact campaign and I'm that I'm proud of, but it also took a lot out of me. Oh, I, I felt bet. very, very spent at the end of that. And I mm-hmm. almost as if I, you know, served in Vietnam myself. Wow. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, after that film, it wasn't like it was up, up and away. So I went back to my writing. I did some work for hire work. And frankly, then I got pregnant. Mm-hmm. I was married. I had kids and I wanted to be a different kind of mother than my mother had been to me. My mother had, you know, worked full time. She had to work full time. She'd been emotionally unavailable. Uh, 
in large part, again, because of her grief, not because that was who she wanted to be. Of course. Um, so I took some time off with my kids. And, and, and that was probably uh, one of the biggest, I don't know if it's a mistake, but one of the things that made it, you know, making my second film like starting all over again. Uh-huh. Yeah. And having to prove yourself. Having to prove myself. Uh, yeah. No one remembered that by the time I was ready to come back. No one remembered it. No one really cared. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so as I mentioned in, in, in the introduction, as I rattled off the titles of your films, you really are looking at marginalized in America. Yeah. And that's what yeah. spoke to you? My father's hometown is Rich Hill, Missouri. Um, and Missouri was the place where, was my happy place growing up. My grandparents, my father's parents were like surrogate parents to me. So as much as my mother had to work really hard and, and wasn't around very much emotionally or physically, um, just because she couldn't, uh, my grandparents were there for me and I spent a lot of time with them. And over the years when I would go back and, and visit them, um, I saw the decline of this place that I loved so, so, so uh-huh. deeply. Mm-hmm. And when I um, was ready to go back to making films, I just felt like I wanted to be in this place. And I also wanted to understand what was happening and what it was like for the people who were clearly living in such hardship. And ignored. Well, ignored, yes. I mean, yes, ignored. Um, Yeah, yeah. And so these films that, in a sense, called to you and struck a chord with you were just also films that you could not not make. I think that's true. (laughs) I think that's true, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like a film finds you and you find a film, um, but it's very, very, very hard to make films. So ultimately, I think it has to be a combination of all of the factors that make it possible. Well, um, like I said in the introduction, I mean, there's also Sarah, which is following a girl's transition as she goes from childhood to adulthood, also in rural Midwest. Yes, yes. Also, also in in Rich Hill, as a matter of fact, you see uh, that there's a, <laughs> yeah, a tie that, that binds here. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm always looking for excuses to go back there and to be there. But but no, I mean, it is the it is a place that I absolutely still love. I have family there who are my favorite people and and are grounding for me. And it's a place um, that. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of isolation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's complicated because it's not... I I really hate in my films when there is suffering. You know, I I don't want to sensationalize it. You know, I don't... don't, You know, the poverty porn thing and the, the kind of swooping in from the outside and looking at something as if it's 
you know, separate from me or, you know, so I, I hope in my work that even, even though I sometimes cover some things that are difficult to also really honor, um, and with Sarah, I, I hope I'm doing, I mean, her resiliency and, and what she, her bravery in all that she does as a mother, even though she encounters a lot of obstacles and, you know, I, I feel like really, really should have <laughs> more, uh, more support than she does. Um, well, you clearly also gain the trust of the young people who you were filming that who felt safe with you, I'm assuming. I hope so. And I hope, uh, you know, I hope that I earned it. And uh, that's the thing as a documentary filmmaker that I feel is the most precious and sacred thing is that relationship between filmmaker and subject, although I hate the word subject. I and I, mm-hmm. I, I haven't come up with the best, you know, people say collaborators or, yeah, but uh, I, that's such, it's very, very important to me. And I hope I don't do anything that, um, you know, dishonors that or betrays that. You're in the editing room, you're separate from the people that you've been filming with. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, choices are always made and I, I, it does, things get complicated when you have to reduce eight years or 10 years or hundreds of hours of footage to what will be 90 minutes. Uh, you know, choices are made and it is always subjective. But nonetheless, you know, I hope, I hope that I have not betrayed anyone's trust. Well, Trust betrayal notwithstanding, your films (laughs) have certainly resonated and you're on the receiving end of some pretty impressive honors. So that has to speak volumes for you also. You got to acknowledge that. I am am grateful for all of that. I mean, it's, I I don't think about it a lot. You know, that's, I don't uh, have my awards up on my desk. I think it, it it always feels like, uh, Oh, it should have been for somebody else. You know, I'm uh, so yeah, I'm grateful for suck? it. Yeah, I got to weigh in on that. Is that just <laughs> something that's in, you know, it was estrogen connected, damn it? I hope not. I hope not. Because I really don't mean that as like the humble brag, to be honest. I'm, I'm learning. Of, mm. of course, we're always learning. But I think that is important, especially for female filmmakers to say, yes, I deserve to be here. Yes, I, you know, am worthy. Yes, my work matters. I mean, those are things that I want my kids to say. These are, you know, I, I, yes. So I'm working on that. Yeah. I feel very, very strongly about that. And what's happened to me over the course of these years that I've been doing this podcast and meeting a lot of female filmmakers, I've got to say, you're ubiquitous in a way that I never thought. And it is incredibly heartening. It's not perfect, but you broads are out there. Yeah. <laughs> so your current project, The Smartest Kids in the World, has nothing to do with the rural Midwest, does it? How was this born? Well, there's this amazing book by a very, very smart person who I admire a lot uh, named Amanda Ripley. 
and I read her book. The book was given to me and was really floored by her insight and and kind of, you know, warning. And at the time that uh, I started to make the film, my kids were close to high school, not in high school yet, but it's a real searing look at high schools in the United States, but not just gloom and doom. There is aspiration there because Amanda followed exchange students going overseas to countries that are doing education better, you know, countries that have figured some things out, not everything out, um, but a lot of things and a lot of things that, you know, here in the United States, we could learn from. So, so I read her book. I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, I met with the folks at Emerson Collective who are, you know, committed to education reform in the United States. And, you know, they, they basically said, would you be willing to, you know, meet with exchange students? They didn't want to, which I deeply, deeply appreciated, kind of make it prescriptive. Tell me like, this is what you have to find. These are the findings. It was much more open-ended than that. There was kind of a trust in students that I might find and follow and, you know, what their takeaways would be, what their experience was. So really the, the mission was follow exchange students who are going to countries overseas and see what they say, see what they think, see what their experience is. Um, and it was, you know, fell at a perfect time for me in my own life with my own children. And so that's, that's how it all started. How were the four selected and where did they go to school abroad? Well, they went to uh, Switzerland, the Netherlands, South Korea, and Finland. Finland is, <laughs> is kind of the gold standard. So we knew that uh, for sure it'd be great to find someone going to Finland. But it was very open-ended. I mean, Amanda had relationships with exchange programs. And so there were some introductions made there. Um, you know, it was important to me that we not cast just the perfect A students who, who, who were going because they wanted to go to France for a year or something. You know, it was more, we really, really wanted to find students whose main intention was to experience something different, who were frustrated with where they were. And frankly, that wasn't so hard to find. <laughs> there were actually, we had a lot of, of, we met so many high school students who said, this is broken. I am not learning what I want to learn. I am in classrooms that are overcrowded. I have to go through a metal detector every day. I'm taking test after test after test. I'm, you know, this is mind numbing. I don't want to be here. Nobody likes high school. I'm not learning anything. I mean, that, this was the kind of, I mean, it was just over and over again. So once you start to hear that kind of thing, that's when, you know, I came more and more and more like, okay, we've got to do this. Yes, we need to do this. Um, and it's very, very hard again, when you have hundreds of hours of footage and you're in the editing room 
who stays in the film and who doesn't. Um, you know, we did follow more students, but in the end, you know, I think these were the countries that were, I think, ultimately had the best takeaways that we thought we could <laughs> kind of include in the film. Well, I mean, these four countries are clearly not, uh, you know, impoverished countries. We're talking about Finland and South Korea and Switzerland. These are very desirable places to live as well as go to school. You know, this is not some third world country. Maybe that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah. Developing country. A developing country. (laughs) Yes, yes. Much better word. Yeah. Of course, Amanda came up with some of this when she also wrote the book about, well, how can you compare? How can you compare? You know, these the United States is so big and diverse yeah, and yeah. unwieldy mm-hmm. and yeah. all of this. And Finland is not diverse at all. And, you know, so and there's one, a lot one millionth the size of the United States. <laughs> right, right. So there's a lot of reasons why to dismiss a lot of what's happening in these countries. I mean, sure. and to say it's not possible. South Korea in particular has not always been a, you know, a country on the up and up. And a lot of their their country's turnaround, now I'm not going to be able to speak super in depth to this, but I do know, um, because I researched it a bit, but some of their turnaround was really tied to their commitment to education Mm -hmm. and was really tied to like we are going to turn our country's whole economy around by investing in education. And that's what a lot of people here in the United States thinks should happen. Right. Is a real real commitment to education as the as the key one of the primary most significant keys to a more equal country a country where we do not have, you know, so many people left behind. Right, right. So you spent how much time following each individual student in four different countries? This sounds incredibly overwhelming. It was a bit overwhelming. It was a, a bit. lot. Of- okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will have to say it was a it was a lot of work, a lot of miles, because we were covering this experience over one school year, which is ultimately nine months. And it just involves a lot of, you know, (laughs) a lot of travel. But I am so, so, so grateful to have had the opportunity because I will say that I felt like I got to be on (laughs) an exchange program myself and to really have this firsthand experience of what it was like in these other places. And it's so different. It's so different. And I hope in some small way I've captured something that will resonate for audiences, whether it's even just the experience of walking through the door and not having to walk through the metal detectors and Mm -hmm. police officers and the police state that we have in many schools here in the United States and what that does. In Switzerland, they have an amazing, what they call professional school. It's an apprenticeship program for students who don't, 
you know, don't want to go into academia or mm-hmm. don't want to go, you know, be a, a lawyer or a doctor. And well, we would call that here a trade school. You would call that a trade school, but there, there is no stigma there. It is not the sort of second tier Tier. uh, choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is equally robust. It's right across the street from the academic high school. And of all the things, this is a huge thing that we could potentially do here in the United States. Uh, And, you know, I, I hope may inspire as, as something to look at. Just parenthetically, did you spend nine months traveling from country to country? No, I did go back and forth and back and forth, but I wasn't there for a full nine months. I I do have my two kids. And Mm -hmm. so I definitely went home and spent some nights with them. But this was the, you know, this was the most in my entire life that I spent away from them. And we kind of did that in agreement with my husband and said, you know, I'm going to do this. Mm. (laughs) We're going to buckle down and uh, I'll see you on the other side. Well, it sounds like it was bigger than you in the sense that it so spoke to you and you needed to do it. I'm curious as to where you want this to be shown. Wow. Well, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if it could be shown, you know, first of all, with parents and schools and educators and superintendents. And I mean, I think the students in large part, they, they know already that things are broken and they, they already have ideas about what they, (laughs) the kind of environment they prefer to live in. So the biggest thing that I think, you know, I hope this film will do is inspire people to listen to students So, you know, I hope students see it, of course, but I hope this inspires those who are a part of education to listen and to parents to listen to students. You know, what do they want? What do they need? And I'm I'm glad that this film is coming out now after this awful year and a half, because I think there might be more of a willingness to think differently, a willingness to make changes, a willingness to do things differently than ever before. Than the status quo, to change the status quo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have felt so strongly about documentaries um, as such a tool to inform, to enlighten, to educate. And there have been so many that I have seen that I scratch my head and think, why isn't this shown in an assembly? I'm involved in a local film festival and um, the documentaries that are shown and they're very eclectic are just so powerful. This is how we learn. This is what we can be exposed to. And sometimes I, you know, it's, it's sort of sad that documentaries get pushed to the side. It is sad. I do think that especially because we've all been home streaming things on our on our home devices or whatever we have, that there's a, a deeper appreciation now more than ever for documentary films. Yeah. And films I, in films in general. It really is such a public service. Like I said, how did the four teens react to being in the film? And what did they think of it? They loved it. And in part they loved it because it's a documentation of one of their 
incredible years, you mean? Exactly. An incredible, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and teenagers, you know, this is the moment for so many when their lives change, when the world gets a lot bigger. And I think in particular, Jackson, he deeply appreciated the fact that we told his story. And he, you know, is in rural Wyoming, a kid who was really, really unhappy in his high school, didn't see many options for what he might do, and and ultimately traveled to the Netherlands, but had never been out of never Wyoming. Been out of the country. <laughs> never been out of Wyoming, never been on a plane, and it was all too much. It was all overwhelming. He couldn't keep up. I mean, all of the classes, many of his classes uh, were taught in English, even though he was in, you know, outside of Amsterdam. So it wasn't always the language barrier, but he couldn't keep up academically, was really, really behind, was overwhelmed by the freedom and the autonomy. And ultimately, you know, chose to leave early, chose to come home after a very short amount of time because he couldn't, he couldn't Mm -hmm. take it. And I think, you know, in some ways that's really, that's really the cautionary tale is if we don't, if we don't empower students, if we don't give them more autonomy, if we don't challenge them and also give them more rigor, what, you know, what, what's going to happen when, you know, they, they, <laughs> they encounter that. It was tricky for, for Jackson. And I think even so he valued the experience. He really valued the fact that we were there with him when he made that decision to come home and came home and also valued the fact that we were shedding a light on what was broken in his home high school mm-hmm. in his world. Yeah. Yeah. How are, how are the students selected? The exchange programs were wonderful to partner with us and to share with us, okay, these are the students that are going overseas. And so we looked at the the countries, you know, we looked at the students who were going to the countries we knew were high ranking, um, that were clearly, clearly, you know, head and shoulders above what we were able to do in the United States. And this is based on, this ranking is based on a very, very, good uh, form of measurement. So I will say that it's a test that is designed to measure collaboration, imagination, like a lot of different things, not just do you know calculus. So, right. mm-hmm. so this is a measurement that, that really does measure important things that I think you know should be cared about. Anyway, so we knew that we were going to follow students going to these countries that were outperforming the United States on this the PISA uh, rankings. And, you know, we found students who, number one, were frustrated with their home high schools that were really going with a clear intention that they did not want to stay where they were. This was their way out. And that were open, you know, to us dropping in on them yeah. and to share and to sharing their experience with us and to, you know, really being in a way, someone who could talk about it, people who could share intelligently what they thought should be, you know, we could emulate. 
Right. Pretty powerful stuff. You know, I'm curious as to, I know this is quite a huge project, but what other irons do you have in the fire or is it just time for you to exhale? Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'm going back to my writing and I'm, you know, I've just completed the Sundance feature film lab with a script that I have written um, based on a true story. And I'm hoping to be able to make the film next year. So it will be my first fiction film, my ah. first na- narrative. So that's a big deal. It feels like a big leap of faith. Um, maybe I'm a late bloomer to be going back to fiction work. Um, but I have not abandoned documentaries by any means. It's still, you know, in, in large part, my first love. I'm still working on Sarah that you brought up. Um, and I'm working on another documentary about in the reproductive justice space uh-huh. about, yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, lots to tackle. Well, here's what you have to do, Tracy. You have to promise that you'll come back and <laughs> that we'll do a part two and you'll fill us in on all these other projects that you're doing. You really juggle a lot of balls in the air at once. Well, that's the way to do it you only go to bed at night dreaming about one project. So you always have to have the one that is the one, but it's also important to have things that are being developed at different stages around that big one, because you you never know what will happen. There's so many twists and turns. Sure. But what speaks to you also, and it sounds like every one of your projects has, yeah, been a labor of love. Yes. Yes. And thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. I have an incredible knack for stating the obvious. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a lot of hard work. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta do it for something. And I'm, I am grateful to have found something that I really, really love. Well, it was Um, bigger than you, as you were saying, in terms of this connecting to your dad, who you never got to know. Yeah. Yeah. That in and of itself is is pretty huge. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe somebody should be turning the camera on you. <laughs> oh, I'm, a hap- I'm happy where I am at this point. That, that's one thing I definitely know is the camera has been turned on me quite enough. I'm happy to, uh, to be behind the camera. But, you know, what the, my films are, are my voice in a, in a large part. You know, yes. I, put my, I put myself in my films. So even if I'm not, you don't see me, I'm there. Well, Tracy Droz Tragos, thank you so much for sharing your passions and your history and your life with us. I've really enjoyed meeting and getting to know you remotely. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for letting me talk so much about my my path. Yes, I mean, that's why you're here. <laughs> so thank you so much and continue to keep us in your loop. Well, thank you. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. <laughs>